where here we have someone who is fully uninterested in God and can live with himself. And I think that in a narrative sense, this represents certain existentialist philosophical perspectives. Welcome back to the RZ Podcast. Today's podcast is titled Beyond the Death of God, Albert Camus' The Stranger. The Stranger is a title of a novel by Albert Camus or Albert Camus, if you're trying to sound French about it. In this novel, he presents a protagonist who exists outside of any care or consideration regarding the question of God. I think this is kind of an interesting path to go down to consider, and I just read the book, so there we go. The title refers to this passage in Nietzsche's Fröhliche Wissenschaft, or translated the gay science, where this madman lights a lantern and goes around saying, you know, where is God? I'm looking for God. And interestingly enough, in that passage, he runs into people, many of who do not believe in God, and they're making fun of him. And he says, I'll tell you where God is. He is dead. We have killed him. We are all his murderers. And it's interesting. He looks into the eyes of these people and he realizes that he has come too soon. And this passage is very famous, partially for those startling words, God is dead. And this passage has been subject to a lot of different interpretations. Some conservative thinkers point to this as a manifestation of the secular humanist way that's corrupting, you know, good Christian society. Others see Nietzsche as the summation or conclusion or destruction of Western metaphysics up to that point, kind of christening in something new. And this passage is often quoted by both detractors and those who promulgate Nietzsche's philosophy. But certainly he is seeking to move beyond certain foundational aspects that were present in a lot of Western philosophical texts. Even those of the Enlightenment who moved away from theology and the church as foundations or justifications for thinking and reasoning and understanding the world, nevertheless, generally had a fundamental theological basis. And in Camus' The Stranger, this novel, we are presented with someone unencumbered by the trappings of theology and even accepted societal presuppositions that are based on a metaphysics that supports a theological understanding of the law, morality, family relations, etc. What I'm trying to advocate in utilizing the terminology beyond the death of God is that this is not a atheism that is antagonistic toward religion, but rather an atheism that is utterly unconcerned with the religious viewpoint. It comes across as naive or utterly meaningless. But we'll get into this. I think what I'd like to do is summarize the plot in just a very general sense, not getting down into the details too much, and then address two scenes where he is confronted by very fervent Christians and has fairly interesting encounters with them. So the book starts out, you know, spoilers in case you're wanting to read the book, but I think when it comes to good literature, 
there generally can be no spoilers. You're not reading this like a crime novel and somebody tells you who the killer was. Novels can be enjoyed for their plot, but as well as just letting the language paint a picture. But you can't skip ahead. I'm not, you know, sophisticated enough to put in some timestamp or whatever, what people do. But you could probably go towards the end, figure out the conclusions, the more theoretical conclusions that would not have to do with um, the novel itself. So the novel starts out with the death of the main character's mother. He, I'm just going to describe him as the protagonist, or he, it's some French name that I'm going to butcher every time I say. And the main character goes through the motions with very little emotional connection. He doesn't even want to see his mother before they seal up the casket. He's, he, he comes across, actually, as very indifferent towards her death. He finds out that she has a fiancé, and he describes the walk down from the old folks' home to the village. It's a hot day. The sun's in his eyes. He can hardly see. He's sweating. They're all you know, marching down to the burial. And then he gets back home. He sits on the terrace of his apartment. He watches people come and go. He smokes and enjoys the night air and observing people. Later, he, and I know this sounds all a little boring, to be honest, when I started reading the novel, I didn't actually know what it was about, which might have helped, because I thought, this is just kind of bland stuff that then later I found out would come into play, but it just comes across as kind of non-eventful novel. He hooks up with a old colleague of his that he runs into, Marie, and befriends someone else who lives in his building. And this guy discloses to the protagonist that this girl he is with, he believes, has been sleeping around. And so I think he kicked her out. And then he's trying to figure out some revenge. And so this guy helps him craft a letter to get her back, but then to kick her out as soon as she wants to come back, kind of as, I don't know, some cruel revenge story. And so he helps him write the letter. When she does come back, it gets out of hand. The friend ends out beating up the girl a little bit. The police come. It's a big fiasco. The main character ends out being a witness for the friend just to get him out of this jam. You know, sometimes older books, you just realize that life might have been a little more violent when this can just be like a normal thing. At the same time, maybe I just am thankful to live under circumstances where that is uh, not a normal thing. You know, domestic violence. I guess it does still happen a lot. So there's my own you know, ignorance coming out. But all this to say, the friend ends up getting in a fist fight with the brother of the girl who, you know, roughed up. And, you know, one day they're going out to the beach just to chill. Him and his girlfriend who actually proposes to him or asks him if he wants to marry. And he says he's fine with it. She wonders if he loves her. He says, I don't know what that even would mean kind of to love you. And but I'll marry you. And so she's kind of confused by that, but still down. She's still excited. And then the three of them go out to visit his friend's friend on the beach. I know this is a lot of it's going to pick up soon. Don't worry. And um, they notice the brother hanging out with a few people across the street. And so they go to the beach, but it's kind of a tense moment. You know, cut to the chase, main character and two guys, his friend and the guy they're meeting on the beach. 
they notice the brother of the girl who was beaten up with a couple other dudes and they get in a physical altercation and the brother has a knife. The friend from the building ends up getting cut and, you know, is pissed off. And later him and the main character go on a walk and the main character is kind of concerned that the friend's going to do something irrational. But the guy's just like, no, nah, I just want to go on a walk. I need to get out. Leave me. I just want to go walking alone. But he still goes with him anyway, just to kind of make sure he's he's on the, you know, he's doing all right. And it seems like he knows where he's walking and he walks to kind of a little uh, cove area, I believe, um, where these guys are chilling. And he pulls out a gun uh, that he had on him. And so, you know, the main character is concerned. And he's trying to give the guy to give him the gun so nothing really goes goes south. And so he, he does end up convincing the guy to give him the gun. Everything seems to calm down for a while. But later, out in the boiling sun, our protagonist finds himself alone. I'm kind of skipping some stuff, but but all that to say, finds himself alone. He again, I feel like this whole story is like a friend of a friend of this, so follow this guy. But he runs into the guy, the brother of the girl who was beaten up, and it's a blistering sun, the sweat and tears are running down from the sun in his eyes, but the guy had the knife, and at this point, he has the gun, and he has pulled out the gun because he doesn't know if the guy's going to do something, and when all that sweat and tears run down because of this blistering heat, he you know squints his eyes and pulls the trigger and kills the guy. And I'll read just briefly. He says, The trigger gave, I felt the smooth underside of the butt and there, in that noise, sharp and deafening at the same time, is where it all started. I shook off the sweat and sun. I knew that I had shattered the harmony of the day, the exceptional silence of a beach where I'd been happy. Then I fired four more times at the motionless body, where the bullets lodged without leaving a trace. And it was like knocking four quick times on the door of unhappiness. But this really is, you know, what screenwriters might call the inciting incident. And so he shoots this guy and then, you know, shoots him four more times, I guess, to, for whatever reason. And that's where the book kind of abruptly stops. It's midway through the book, the first half, and the second half starts him down this road of being in the criminal justice system. And he kind of takes it all in stride. He's not too concerned at first. He's, you know, put in jail and they're waiting to develop his hearing or to set a time for a hearing with the judge. And here we have the first encounter with a religious figure who tries to convert him. And it's the magistrate who is interviewing him regarding the, regarding the killing. It all starts kind of normal, but the magistrate is most puzzled by the fact that he shot four more times or that he paused and then shot four more times after he had already shot the guy. And I'll be honest, I was a little bit wondering about that too. But he can't really get his head around this. And then he ends out pulling out a crucifix and declares that that he believes in God and no one is so far from God that he can't be forgiven. So the magistrate asks the main character if he believes in God. The main character doesn't believe in God and he's distraught about this and you know, ask him, don't you believe, you know, that Christ suffered for your sins and this and that. And, you know, in this scene, the main character is actually more concerned with just being annoyed at this and not understanding what, why it's going on and is actually more concerned with 
the room being hot and the flies bothering him. So he tries to get out of it by just nodding along. And then the guy, the magistrate's excited that he's, he's like, yes, I knew that you would believe in, you believed in God. And then he's like, no, actually, you know, I don't believe in God. Sorry. I was just trying to, you know, get out of the situation. And then the magistrate is desperate. He can't conceive of the fact that someone couldn't believe in God and that presented with this, all these other criminals do. And the main character is kind of has this funny thing where he's like, yeah, they're criminals. So of course they might do that. And he's like, well, I guess technically I am one too, but that's their right if they want to do that. But I don't know what's going on here. And then after that, you know, everything goes smoothly. He says, you know, that kind of, I think the magistrate went to a tipping point and even jokingly calls him like Mr. Antichrist after that, but has, you know, resolved that he is beyond saving, or at least that it's not worth, it's not going to be productive to continue to harp on this guy about believing in God. But he's tense. He's, he's holding the crucifix, you know, in his face and telling him that, you know, how why can't he believe that he suffered for the, his sins and stuff. So it's, it's quite a kind of funny scene because it's juxtaposing the intense passion of the magistrate to that of the indifference of the protagonist. This juxtaposition is interesting on a philosophical level. There is a philosopher, Rick Roderick, who had a lecture entitled The Self Under Siege, I believe in the early 90s. And he addresses what he calls the masters of suspicion, namely Nietzsche, Freud, and Marx. And he uses these thinkers as a means to represent the suspicion under which faith must go in our modern times, that we no longer live in a fully religious construct, something like that of the Middle Ages, where even one who lacks fervent religious faith, the world was constructed under a metaphor of the Christian faith. And these means of suspicion reveal some of the underlying elements to society that were taken as a given. And relating this to the stranger, we have a religious figure who is perplexed by the fact that our protagonist does not feel the need to even reject God. This is out of the question, and he can live with himself. Whereas in a more religious world, you could reject God, but you could not live outside of that realm. Either you believe in God or you reject God. Where here, we have someone who is fully uninterested in God and can live with himself. And I think that in a narrative sense, this represents certain existentialist philosophical perspectives. This being the frustration of the police captain with the opinion and disposition of the protagonist in this confrontation. So following this, there's a bunch of court stuff. It's an interesting read, enjoyable in its own way, but to get to more theoretical point, he is sentenced to death and he's in prison waiting for the guillotine. And so he spends his days in the cell, always worried for the next dawn where the, you know, the regular time they'll come to get him to, you know, I was going to say get the axe, which is actually quite close to uh, the guillotine. And he is given the chance to speak with the priest, which he continually declines. But so anyway, we find him here thinking about life, death, the absurdity of it all. And this isn't a moralizing by any stretch of the imagination. This isn't a Dostoevsky where you have the main character kill someone, albeit for more selfish purposes, but to kill someone still in an almost theoretical way and then be wrestling with it and have this intense angst over it. 
Here, there is just a more sober wrestling with it. Not of what he did, but that he will die. And then the second scene where he's confronted with someone is when the priest comes to visit him. So the priest wonders why, and I'm kind of paraphrasing this. I'll put the English translation I'm referring to in the description here. So if anybody wants to find that. And the priest wants to know why the protagonist did not come to see him or allow the priest to visit. And the protagonist states that he does not believe in God and didn't see any point. And it's interesting because the priest is challenging him on, you know, maybe he's in despair. Maybe couldn't it be that God actually exists? You're just, you can't be sure of it. And what is interesting is that the protagonist then is in his own mind just thinking, you know, maybe it's possible, maybe it's not, but it is uninteresting to me. And this is where that beyond the death of God comes because it's not so much that there could or there couldn't be a God. It's just through and through uninteresting question to him. And one interesting statement then when they're talking, he's like, don't you have any hope? And I think he's referring to hope and beyond because he's saying, don't you have any hope? Hope that, you know, can it be that when you're gone, you're just gone? And then the protagonist starts to just get annoyed by all this questioning. Even when the priest is further confronting him, he's just like basically saying he doesn't have that much time left and he doesn't want to waste it on God. And I'll read a little bit of this just to convey more than I could, you know, some of the the writing style and the ideas. He says, he being the priest seemed so certain about everything, didn't he? And yet none of his certainties was worth any hair of a woman's head. He wasn't even sure if he was alive because he was living like a dead man. Whereas it looked as if I was the one who'd come out empty-handed, but I was sure about me, about everything, sure than he could ever be, sure of my life and sure of the death I had waiting for me. Yes, that was all I had, but at least I had as much of a hold on it as it had on me. And then moving forward a little ways, what did other people's deaths or a mother's love matter to me? What did his God or the lives people choose or the fate they think they elect matter to me? when we're all elected by the same fate, me and billions of privileged people like him, who also called themselves my brothers. Couldn't he see? Couldn't he see that? Everybody was privileged. There was only privileged people. The others would all be condemned one day, and he would be condemned too. What would it matter if he were accused of murder and then executed because he didn't cry at his mother's funeral? End quote. And so we see in this section he's kind of letting loose. But then after this, he kind of comes, you know, the priest is taken away, the guards are, you know, calming him down. Then he comes to this conclusion, which also relates to his mother taking a fiance when she was on the cusp of, of death, really. And he, he understands this. He accepts the absurdity of life and embraces the meaninglessness of the universe and as such wants to live each moment anew. So that's kind of the book if anybody hung in there for this, and something that might be worth delving into at another time. But related to this, he wrote a philosophical treatise called The Myth of Sisyphus. Sisyphus was punished by the gods for cheating death twice. As punishment, he was forced to roll a stone or a boulder up a mountain, and every time he would reach the top, that boulder would roll back down the mountain, and he would be forced to roll it back up again. And this he had to do for eternity. Camus uses this metaphor for the absurdity of life, 
kind of the challenge between human consciousness and the universe and that absurdity and even lack of meaning. But as such, he wants to find and believe in one's own ability to create a certain destiny that is separate from the fate of the universe, which is probably deterministic and in the end, ultimately meaningless in relationship to our lives. But this you know, philosophical text is quite intense and, and speaking about the meaninglessness of the universe or death and all that kind of stuff, a little picture of that can be drawn from this myth of Sisyphus when the first subtitle of this text is called Absurdity and Suicide. And he begins, there is only one truly serious philosophical problem, and that is suicide. Judging whether life is or is not worth living amounts to answering the fundamental question of philosophy. Before, and that text is a little too dense to to get into, nor do I want to do it here, but I think his idea and his wrestling with the absurd is presented here in the text of The Stranger. And although bad things happen to him from the outside, he navigates through a world full of maybe idols or deceptions or things that give people hope, but he wants to present an antagonist who is not encumbered, not held back by hope in a certain way, but someone who then embraces just the the nearness of life and the realness of life and accepting that as having its own meaning. And then from this position, I think you can look back and see throughout the novel how some of these positions have already been there. The description of the hot, blistering hot day of the funeral, the cool evening breeze, smoking, observing the other people coming and going, the enjoyment of food or wine, this kind of visceral human sensation of life that continues to repeat itself. And even in his cell at the end, those beautiful stars and the cool night breeze affect him. All this to say, he doesn't present an argument necessarily for or against God, but he presents a figure and a position that is utterly unconcerned with that, but is highly concerned with the individual accepting their place in the world and accepting experience and not living in some sort of regret. He talks about when he's ranting to the priest, you know, I chose this and not that. And this is just, you know, this is the life that I have. And that's it. And so I hope that was interesting. The novel's pretty quick. I think I read it in two afternoons. And it is enjoyable. I would say read the first, you know, 60 some pages because it doesn't take that long. And that's when it really kicks off more of his absurdist philosophical reflections. But it is built on that first half, which seems somewhat bland, but then later seems to have more significance when you read of that. And I would say pay attention to the descriptions of nature and sensation. At the end of the day, you can determine for yourself if you find this type of viewpoint worthwhile. There are not arguments presented in the book, but rather a, a vision of this position towards reality. And I think that there are people like this. Often the religious side and sometimes the very positivistic scientism demand either or, or God or not God, or this reading of the world or not that. And in this presentation, he's primarily concerned. He doesn't mind that people have those things, but it's just so unconcerning to him and uninteresting. And in conclusion, I want to wrap it back around to 
that discussion between the prison commander and the protagonist in that this book represents a viewpoint that is outside the parameters of religion. And to that degree, I think it does achieve a representation in narrative form of some of the existentialist positions. And being a short read is worth checking out. I wouldn't say its language is the most tantalizing or engaging. It's written in a rather plain, straightforward way. But as such, it is also one of the more easily accessible pieces of existentialist literature and is well worth checking out 